said, uh, Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you, when they revile you, when they cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice in that day and leave for joy, for indeed your reward will be great in heaven, for in like manner their fathers did the prophets. So he says these phrases, and he speaks them to his disciples, but what we find out in chapter 7 is that these were more commands. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom, that this is a future fulfillment. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be filled in future. Blessed are you who are broken and weeping, for you will laugh and go Sorrow won't have the last word. And so as we get to chapter 7, what we see is Jesus gets done teaching. And oftentimes Christianity, if we're not careful, stops with the study. It stops with the lecture. It stops with the, you know, the theoretical, and it never hits the ground running. It stops with the theoretical, and it never becomes a reality in our lives. And so Jesus, our example, our leader, he says, faith is meant to be more than words. And he introduces, or he comes into contact with four individuals in chapter 7. So I want you to notice how the chapter starts. It says, when he concluded all his sayings in the hearing of the people. When he concluded teaching, that's not when it stopped. That's actually when the work started. So when he got done with his words, he entered Capernaum. And as soon as he enters Capernaum, a certain centurion servant who was dear to him was sick and ready to die. So this is a, a certain centurion's servant who is sick and about to die. So when the centurion heard about Jesus, sent elders of the Jews to Jesus and had them plead with Jesus to come and heal his servant. And when these when these elders came to Jesus, they begged Jesus earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this was deserving. And here's the reason. For he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. So we have this centurion who is a leader of a hundred. That's what it means to be a centurion in the Roman army. And typically, the Jews and the Romans are at odds, aren't they? Uh, they're being oppressed by the Romans. They're, they're being ruled over by the Romans. And yet this centurion that lives in Israel, and he, that's where his post is, it seems to me that he has a good relationship this is not just every centurion. This is definitely not every Roman. It, he's, he's a rare breed. He's in Rome, and yet he serves Rome, and yet he loves the nation of Israel, and has even gone as far as building a synagogue for those that he is you know, a ruler over. It reminds me of the promise that God made to Abraham. What was the promise in Genesis 12? bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And so these Jews, whether they realize it or not, they want Jesus to take care of the centurion's need because he's been a blessing to them. And so they plead with Jesus, would you please take care of this man's servant because he's a friend of ours. He's treated us well. So Jesus went with them. And when he was already not far from the house, centurion again sent friends to him, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, because I'm not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Now this is uncommon in the vernacular of a Roman centurion. Centurions would come in and they would, they, they decide what needs to happen. They're men of action. But this man is humble. 
says to Jesus through his friends, Lord, do not trouble yourself. I'm not worthy. Now think about that for a moment. When was the last time that you put that you said that out loud? I'm not worthy of blah blah blah. And as Americans, typically, we believe that we have the right to whatever we want, don't we? We we are all the our confession many times, even as Christians, is Lord, I'm worthy of this. Give it to me. Even in our prayers, we don't realize it, but that becomes our attitude. This man's not even an Israelite. He's not a religious man that we know of. He says, "I'm not worthy that you should even enter my house, let alone heal my servant." And he goes on in verse seven and says, "Therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you." See, people that are in positions many times don't travel or. Send message. They don't take a message themselves. They have messengers. So when I first read this, I thought this man doesn't have time to go talk to Jesus. Well, it wasn't that. What we find out from verse seven is not that he didn't have time. He didn't think himself worthy to get an audience with Jesus. And I don't want you to waste your time on me, Jesus. I'm just a lowly. Say the word, and my servant will be healed. So, where does this confidence come from? Apparently, he's been observing the ministry of Jesus, and in verse eight it says, "For I also am a man placed under authority." So, a Roman centurion, his words have authority, not because he gets it from himself, but because he's under authority. And we, as men, maybe you're a husband. God has given you authority in your household. We can use it, or we can misuse it. We can use it, or we can we can squander it. And here, this man watching the ministry of Jesus says, "I am a man also, like you, in that I am under the authority of someone. So when I have soldiers under me, I say to them, 'Go, and he goes.' I say to another, 'Come, and he comes.'" Say to my servant, "Do this," and he does it. And this happens because he has authority from Rome. And so, what he's saying to Jesus is, "I recognize that you're a man under authority, and so that's why your words cause things to happen." Even Nicodemus said to Jesus, "I know that no man can do the things that you're doing." Can't do unless someone is with you. Someone has given you the authority to do it. And so Jesus, hearing the confession of the centurion, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at the centurion, and he turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, "I say to you, I've not found such great faith, not even in Israel." Jesus marveled at the centurion. Of Israel, a nation that was developed and created through miracles, they didn't have any faith in Jesus, and yet this centurion, who in many ways was an enemy of Israel, noticed the ministry of Jesus and he confessed faith. So the word I looked up the word uh, marvel. It's the word thalmaso, which I'm probably butchering the pronunciation, but it means properly to wonder at. Astonished out of one's senses, awestruck, wondering greatly. To marvel means to cause to wonder. Now, I might cause my children to wonder by the things that I do. Whoa! Can you believe Dad can do that? But to cause the Son of God to wonder is unheard of. God's not surprised by what. This case, this faith that he 
wants Jesus to stop, to notice it, and then to tell the crowd around him, I've not found faith like this in all of Israel. This happens two times. Now the word marvel, I looked it up in the Bible, it's mentioned in many times in the Gospels. And most of the time it's because people are marveling at what they see Jesus do, at what they hear him say, at the things that he does outside of their what they expect. They don't expect Jesus to be like he is. And yet there are very few times that it says that Jesus marveled. Uh, two times he marvels at the faith of individuals. One is this Roman centurion. The other is found, I believe it's in Mark chapter 7, where he wonders at the Syrophoenician woman who expresses faith that he can heal her daughter. But the third time that we see it is in Mark chapter 6, verse 6, where Jesus marvels at the lack of faith in the Israelites that lived in his hometown of Nazareth. He marveled that they didn't believe in him. But the two times that he marvels at faith, it's not by Jews, it's both by Gentiles. People that were outside of the covenant of God. He marveled that they would express such faith. So he marvels, he takes note of it, and it says there, those who were sent returned to the house, because what was the confession? He says, um, I know, verse 7, that if you say the word, my servant will be healed. And in verse 10, those who were sent to Jesus returned to the house where the servant was, and they found him well, who had been sick. Chapter 8, verse 13, it says that they asked the question, When did he become better? And they did the math and they figured out when Jesus had said it the day before. And it was the exact same time that he said that his faith had made him well, that he was healed. And so Jesus completely ignores the faith of this centurion. Now, verse 11, now it happened the day after that Jesus went into a city called Nain. Now, I don't remember this being this passage, so I had to go look up where it was, and it's about 25 miles to the south of Capernaum. And many of his disciples went with him, and a large crowd. So by this time, Jesus has a following. He has those who are called, were called disciples. In the last chapter, we found that he named his apostles, but then he also has a large crowd that are following. And when he came near to Nain, the gate of the city, uh, behold, a dead man was being carried out. So Jesus, life in a person, eternal life, the bread of life, the very essence of God in human flesh is walking into a city, and at the same time, there's a dead man being carried out of the city only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the city was with him. So picture this. At the city gate of Nain, there's this procession coming into the city. Life itself is walking into the city in the person of Jesus, and at the same time, death is leaving the city. Interesting. Jesus arrives, death leaves. Sounds like also what we see is that when they came to Jesus, they, sorry, I lost my verse there real quick. When the Lord saw her, verse 13, two very large crowds, and who does Jesus see? The widow who just lost her only son. The broken person, the one weeping, the one saw her and he had compassion. Now, that phrase there, moved with compassion, is the word stratia, which I'm sure I said that wrong, but I didn't really know. But the 
seen things before and it makes your, your skin crawl. Like when my daughter fell the first time and really got hurt, it made me sick to my stomach. I had compassion. Um, it, so Splagstron, it's Greek and it's the gut level, the heart, seat of the three kings. So that's what it means to be moved with compassion. But the word, I didn't realize it, it means to suffer with. That's what compassion means. To suffer with someone. Or another way to put it, and this is kind of a practical application, is I hear about your pain and I allow it to affect me from my heart. Your pain and my heart. Now, we live in a society where we like to guard ourselves from letting other people's situations ourselves in being able to put up walls and avoid being affected by pain. But in this case, it says Jesus saw this woman, and he was moved with compassion on her, and he said to her, do not weep. Now, this is not like I would say to my son if he barely bumped his leg and starts crying, hey, don't cry about that, you're okay, right? And we are tempted when people are crying, and we know that they know Jesus, to go, hey, it's going to be fine, it's gonna be, you're, you're going to be okay, it's just a, just a little temporary setback. It's going to be fine. There's the resurrection. You know, we have hope in, in eternal life, not in this life. He didn't say that. He just said to her, do not weep. But he didn't say that to her without also having compassion on her. He felt her pain. Do you know, and maybe someone needs to hear this this morning, Jesus takes the pain that we experience and he allows it to affect Of 
other gospel writers do. He was so weighed down upon, felt burdened so much that it says that he was sweating while he was praying great drops of blood, evidence that he was stressed by it. But what's interesting is that Luke also captures the fact that when he had finished praying that God sent an angel to minister to him and strengthen him. So many times we feel weak, number one, uh, because we're not strengthened by the Lord, we're walking in our own strength. Number two, we're not willing to bear anyone else's burdens but our own. We're avoiding pain. We want to be comfortable. But what I found this week is that I'll bear the pain of others, let it affect me in the heart, and move me to get involved in some form or fashion as he leads, that God will actually fill me back up with the power I need to bear it with him. Does that make sense? It's kind of, it, it's counterintuitive. What we think is, if I keep myself from being affected by other people's pain, then I'll have strength for my own, and then I can carry on. But what God shows us in his word is that if we'll bear the pain of others, he'll actually give us more strength to bear theirs and make room in others, but on top of that, they'll get the experience what it says there in verse 16. When he did this, fear came upon all, and they glorified God. They glorified God because a great prophet had risen among his people. God has visited us. If you'll bear people's pain with them, they won't see you. They'll see Jesus. Because nobody does that. We spend all of our time trying to isolate ourselves from our own pain. Definitely, if we're going to isolate ourselves from our own pain, we'll definitely try to isolate ourselves from being hurt by others and their pain. But Jesus says, I want their pain to affect me. I want their burdens to touch me. And as he does this, God is glorified. Their testimony was God has visited his people. And this report about him went throughout all Judea and all the surrounding say all this to say, but what about ours? Do we let people's sufferings affect us to the point where we're uncomfortable? Do we let people's pain into our own hearts to the point where we shut it away? And I want to encourage you this week. Let people's pain affect you. Let it break your heart. It breaks God's heart. And when you let it break your heart, you can break those people. He'll then give you what you need Verse 18. Then the disciples of John reported to him concerning all these things. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to Jesus, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? John the Baptist is wrestling with doubt. Now, why would John be wrestling with doubt? Let's go forward. When the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the or do we look for another? And so Jesus, that very hour, cured many of infirmities, many afflictions, and evil spirits, and to many blind he gave their sight. And Jesus answered the disciples of John and said to them, Go and tell John the things that you've seen. Now up until this point, John had already heard about the things, but now they're going to go back with testimony of the things that they've seen things that he had heard. And here's the testimony. The blind can see, the lame are walking, the lepers are cleansed of leprosy, the deaf are hearing, the dead have been raised, 
this. Blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Now in Luke chapter 4, Jesus had read from Isaiah chapter 61 verse 22, and one of the things that he said that he would do as part of his ministry is he would set captives free. Where's John at this moment?
messengers to encourage John while he's in prison. He, why, why didn't he tell? What did he say here in these verses? He was basically saying of John, "Well done, good and faithful servant." Why didn't he say that to him?
the Pharisees are mad at Jesus because they're wicked sinners. Because guess what? I identify as a sinner, not a Pharisee. But just due to the fact that when I read the Pharisee asked him to eat with them, and he sat down to eat, I was mad. Because I'm self-righteous, that's why. Apparently now this is no different than the Pharisee. So maybe some of you need to hear that. Maybe you're a Pharisee too. I read a book once on it, by the way, just a side note. It was called Pharisecrity. <laughs> and the premise was, we don't realize it, but we are all Pharisees. We are all self-righteous in some way. And God has to come in and remove that. Now, I've seen other pictures in your mind, but I'm sorry about that. It was a really good book. If you get a chance, look up the book, Pharisecrity. But here it says, He went to the Pharisee's house, and he sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil. And she stood at his feet behind him, weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears. And she wiped them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he talked to himself. He spoke to himself, saying, This man, begins to, you want to compare yourself to the sinful woman Pharisee? 
I'll compare her to you. By the way, the comparison game is never a right play. But Jesus goes, okay, I'll play your silly game. I'll compare you to the way that I see you. Do you see this woman? Do you really see her? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has washed my feet with what she had, her tears. And she's wiped them with the hair of her head. She doesn't have water. She doesn't have a rag. She used what she had. Interestingly enough, she was a prostitute. And they would use their hair to draw men and seduce them. And now she takes the filth, much less used for iniquity, to wash Jesus' feet. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You didn't greet me with a holy kiss, and yet she has been greeting me since she arrived. You did not anoint my head with oil, Bless your guests who put oil on their heads. But this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Now in the Bible, when they anoint someone, would they anoint their feet? No, they would anoint their hands. But she's stuck at his feet at this moment. She doesn't feel worthy of it. She's behind him, looking at his feet, and as close as she's willing to get, that's where she stops and worships. as you feel like you can get to Jesus, he'll accept your worship. You don't have to be amazing to know Jesus is the person that you see and they're throwing their hands up and singing God's praises and they're unashamed. Maybe that's not you. Maybe you've got your arms outside, but you don't want to draw attention to yourself. You don't feel worthy to be here. It's okay. Jesus will accept your worship where you are. He's going to draw you closer. That's not how it works. But until you feel Her sins are many. They are. But they're forgiven. They're forgiven. I'm not counting them against her anymore. For she has loved much. But for whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. And then he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. So he didn't just talk about her sins being forgiven. He now turns to the woman feels unworthy, who won't look him in the face, and he says, look up at me. Your sins are forgiven. I've forgiven you. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is, who does he think he is? And he knows who he is. Why does he have the right to forgive sins? Because he's getting ready to be the sacrifice for sin. And so they said, who is this who even forgives sins? said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Faith. Which saves you and I from our sin. How does God save us? Is it if we do enough good works towards Him, if we pour oil on His feet, if we cry, is that what saves us? No, it's faith. What is faith? So as I was thinking about what faith is, I was thinking such trust. But my point is, is that putting your trust, putting your faith in something is to put your confidence, no matter what you call it, 
something. And here he's saying, because you've put your complete confidence in me, you're safe. Now when this woman leaves this interaction, she's poured out this alabaster flask of fragrant oil. And many believe it was actually worth a year's wages. Now, don't think about what her year's wages would be. Think about what yours is. Anybody know that? Maybe you don't. If you worked for a year, how much money would you have if you could if you could save the whole thing? She took a year's wages and just poured it out. You couldn't get it back in. They would have to break the flask, and now it's broken. There's no getting it back in. There's no scraping it back up. It's it's been poured out. So when she leaves, she has nothing left. She's poured out her devotion. She's poured out her her, her uh, savings. She's she's humiliated herself in the sight of this man, and this man says, "Your complete confidence in me has saved you." Go in peace. We're saved, Ephesians two says, by grace. Right? It, it's not something we deserve. We cannot pay for the debt that Jesus has been willing to pay for us. So we're saved by grace through faith. And faith is probably better illustrated by this. Each one of you have exercised faith this morning. I'm not sure. I don't see any of you not sitting completely on your chair. Each one of you have trusted the chair you're sitting on, and I know that because you're not doing this the whole time squatting over it, but not resting on it, right? Some of us have spent our entire faith life with Jesus, saying, I trust you, Jesus, but we've never actually sat down. And that's uncomfortable. It's, it's uncomfortable, isn't it? If, if I had each of you do that for five minutes, you'd be like, this is terrible. Why are we doing that? You've made your point, right? But she put her complete confidence in Jesus of that, Jesus can tell her with confidence that now she can have peace. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, it says, faith is the evidence of things hoped for. Or excuse me, the substance of things hoped for is the evidence of things not seen. But then in verse 6, it says, without faith, it's impossible Some of us, myself included this week, God has called me beyond what I can do on my own. He's wanting me to put my complete confidence in Him. What about you? Are you still resting? You can't rest in Jesus because you're still squatting above the chair. You're not throwing your entire weight on Jesus. And because of that, you're anxious, you're worried all the time. Every time something circumstantial happens, Tizzy again? And Jesus is saying, put, put my yoke upon you. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Trust Him. Stop trusting yourself. Stop placing your hope in other things. He is worthy of our trust. He's never failed. Literally. Anyone who's put their confidence in the Lord has never failed them. Not He has a couple of times. Ever, ever failed. He told his disciples, 